You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, 14 Lectures, translated by Simon Blaxland de Lange. This is Lecture 9, given in Berlin on the 30th of January, 1913, entitled Raphael's Mission in the Light of the Science of the Spirit. Raphael is one of those figures in the history of human culture who appear like a star. Such figures emerge all of a sudden, so that one has the feeling that they suddenly appear from indeterminate depths of the spiritual evolution of mankind and then disappear again after they have, through mighty creative deeds, made their mark upon the cultural life of humanity. On closer observation, it becomes evident that a human being of this nature, who first flares up like a star and then disappears again, is linked to the whole of human culture as an integral part of a great organism. One has this feeling especially in the case of Raphael. Hermann Grimm, the eminent art historian of whom I spoke last time, has tried to trace Raphael's influence and fame through the ages, subsequent to his own time, and right up to the present. He was able to show that what Raphael has created has, since his death, continued to exert a living influence, that a unified stream of spiritual development has flowed from his life, reaches beyond his death, and extends to our own time. If Hermann Grimm has shown how the ensuing development of humanity is a living extension of Raphael's creative work, so, on the other hand, could one say with respect to cultural history that the preceding ages can give one the impression that they were themselves in a certain sense pointing toward the later appearance of Raphael as an integral part of a whole organism. It is appropriate at this point to recall an observation made by Goethe and apply it not to the world of space, but to the world of time. Goethe made this significant pronouncement, quote, How can a person relate to the infinitude of space if he does not gather up all the spiritual forces that are extended on all sides within the inmost depths of his being? If he does not ask himself, can you conceive of yourself in the midst of this eternally living order if you do not at the same time distinguish in yourself a persistently moving element around a pure central focus? Close quote. Applying these words to the evolution of the ages, one might say that in a certain respect the gods of Homer, who have been described so masterfully by Homer nearly a thousand years before the founding of Christianity, would, as we look back to antiquity, lose something of their stature if we were not able to see how they have been reborn in the soul of Raphael and have reached a kind of consummation through the mighty pictorial expression that they have found in his creative work. Thus what Homer accomplished long before the coming of Christianity is linked for us with what originated in the 16th century from the soul of Raphael. Again, if we turn our attention toward the biblical figures of the New Testament and then study the paintings of Raphael, we have the feeling that something would be lacking if the descriptions in the Bible were not augmented by the creative, formative power of Raphael's Madonnas and similar pictures deriving from biblical tradition and legend. Therefore, one might say, that Raphael does not only live on in the ensuing centuries, but his own creative work is integrally related to what preceded him, which itself points toward the consummation that it should find through him, even though this, it is true, comes to expression only in the course of later historical study. Thus a phrase used by Lessing, namely, quote, the education of the human race, close quote, appears in a particular light when we see how, in this way, a unified spiritual essence flows through the evolution of humanity. 
and how this unified essence streams forth especially in outstanding figures such as Raphael. Moreover, the notion of repeated earthly lives, which has so often been emphasized from a spiritual scientific standpoint in relation to the cultural evolution of mankind, can be experienced in a quite particular way, if one bears in mind what has just been said. One realizes for the first time what it means that this human essence reappears again and again in repeated earthly lives through the ages of human history and bears from one age to another what is to be implanted in the cultural evolution of mankind. Spiritual science looks always for meaning in human evolution. It does not merely wish to depict the successive events in human history in a continuous straight line, but aims to attribute a significance to particular periods. So that when the human soul appears again and again in successive earthly lives, it is constantly able to experience something new when it enters earthly existence. Thus we can indeed speak of an education that the human soul undergoes through its various earthly lives, an education through everything that has been created and developed by the common spirit of humanity. What will be said here from a spiritual scientific standpoint about Raphael's relationship to human evolution as a whole during the last few centuries is not intended to be a philosophical appraisal of history, but something that has emerged quite naturally from an extensive study of his creative work. Moreover, the theme of this evening's lecture has arisen not because of some sort of desire to make a philosophical survey of the cultural life of humanity, but because everything that I have experienced after contemplating and reflecting upon various works of Raphael has crystallized quite naturally into what I should now like to say. It will be impossible to make detailed studies of Raphael's paintings. This can be done only if one has the means to display his pictures before the audience. However, Raphael's creative work gives rise to a general impression, and if one has studied Raphael, something of an overall impression arises in one's soul. One may then ask, how can this general impression be related to human evolution as a whole? One's attention becomes focused in relation to Raphael on a particular period with which he is intimately connected, that period which is associated with the development of the Greek people. Indeed, if we study human evolution over recent millennia, we encounter a kind of intermediate age which the Greeks not only created but experienced with their whole being. Greek culture, which in a certain sense coincides with the founding of Christianity, was preceded by an age with a quite different character from the one that followed this Greek period. If we study the people living in the time that preceded Greek culture, we find that the soul and spirit of human beings was far more intimately connected with everything of an outward bodily nature than was the case in the later period. What we refer to today as an internalization, an inner withdrawal of the human soul when it seeks to turn to the spirit or become conscious of the spiritual foundations of the world, this did not exist to the same degree as today in pre-Grecian times. The situation at that time was that when a person made use of his bodily organs, the spiritual mysteries of existence simultaneously illumined his soul. The detached and aloof observation of the sense world, characteristic of modern science, did not exist in this former time. A person beheld objects with his senses and experienced, together with the sense impression, what was living and weaving of a soul-spiritual nature in the phenomena. In contemplating the phenomena with his senses, he could at the same time perceive the spiritual domain. In these ancient times it was not necessary to withdraw from the sensory impressions, to give oneself up wholly to inner contemplation in order to advance one's knowledge of the spiritual world. If we go very far back in the evolution of humanity, 
we find that what we call, in the true sense, a, quote, clairvoyant perception of phenomena, close quote, was a capacity that people generally possessed in ancient times, and that this clairvoyant perception was not achieved through special circumstances, but was something as natural as sensory perception. Then came Greek culture, with its distinctive world, of which it can be said that the cultural life begins to acquire an inward quality, but that what the mind experiences inwardly is always seen in connection with what is taking place in the outer world. In Greek culture, a balance is maintained between the sensory and the soul-spiritual elements. The spiritual domain was no longer as directly present with sense perception as was the case in pre-Grecian times. It arose in the Greek soul as a separate inner faculty, but as something that one felt when the senses were directed toward the outer world. The spiritual dimension was beheld not in, but through the phenomena. Thus in pre-Grecian times the human soul was, as it were, poured out into the bodily nature. In Greek culture it had to some extent freed itself from this bodily nature but the balance between the soul-spiritual and the bodily aspects was still maintained. This is why what the Greeks created seems to be as fully imbued with spirit as that which came before their eyes through the agency of their senses. Then come the post-Grecian times, those times when the human mind becomes internalized, when it was no longer able to receive what lives and weaves in the phenomena in terms of spiritual content, together with the sense impression. These are the times when the human soul had to withdraw into itself and had to experience its struggles and conquests in a state of inward separation, if it wanted to reach toward the world of spirit. Spiritual contemplation of phenomena and sensory perception of phenomena became in a certain sense two worlds that the human soul had to experience. This becomes discernible if we study a figure such as Augustine, who lived at a time that was approximately as distant from the founding of Christianity as our age is from the Reformation. If we compare what Augustine experienced and expressed in his writings with what has come down to us from the world of ancient Greece, how well this characterizes the progress of humanity of which we have been speaking. All that Augustine sets forth in his entitled Confessions, what he shows us of the struggles of the inwardly focused soul, what he shows us of a scene of action which is depicted within the inner soul, set apart from the outer world, all this is impossible to envisage in the case of the ancient Greeks, where we universally see how that which lives in the soul is linked with what is being enacted in the outside world. It would be true to say that the evolutionary history of humanity shows evidence of a mighty incision. On the one hand, there is the world of ancient Greece, which shows us how humanity maintains the balance with respect to the soul-spiritual and the outward bodily aspects. On the other hand, there is the influence in this respect of the founding of Christianity, which had the effect that everything that the human soul was able to experience took the form of inner struggles and conquests, while attention was directed not to the sense world in order to become conscious of the riddles of existence, but to what the human mind could perceive intuitively if it devoted itself wholly to soul-spiritual forces. What a deep gulf separates the infinitely different figures of ancient Greece, the majestic Greek gods so perfected in their beauty, Zeus or Apollo, and the Christ dying on the cross, who is characterized by inner depth and greatness, but not by outward beauty. This is the outward symbol of that deep incision that Christianity and the world of ancient Greece form in the evolution of mankind. And in those figures that follow the Grecian age, we see the effects of this incision as an ever stronger internalization of the soul. This internalization that has thus taken place 
characterizes the further progress of human evolution. If one wants to understand this evolution of humanity from a spiritual scientific point of view, one needs to realize that we live in an age which, to the extent that we observe its immediate antecedents and the prospects that we can see emerging in an eventual future, can increasingly be seen in terms of an intensifying internalization. Thus we envisage a future in which an even greater gulf that can be revealed from a contemplation of the past will open up between everything that goes on in the world without, that takes place in the more or less mechanical, technical life of the outer world, and what the human soul endeavors to achieve if it seeks to scale the heights of a spiritual domain which will become accessible only when in our inner being we try to take the steps that lead to it. We are approaching a time of ever greater inwardness. However, a significant stage in this advance of humanity toward greater inwardness in post-Grecian times is marked by the creative legacy of Raphael. Raphael is a quite particular figure who represents a kind of watershed in human evolution. What preceded him may be thought of as the beginning of this process of internalization, and what comes after him can be seen as a new chapter in this process. Although much that I have to say in today's lecture may sound like a kind of symbolic study, it should not merely be regarded in symbolic terms, but in such a way that the attempt is made to grasp what in comparison to Raphael's immeasurable greatness can only be clothed in trivial human concepts, albeit framed in concepts and ideas that are as broad as possible. When we try to penetrate into Raphael's soul, we are struck first and foremost by the way that this soul appears in the year 1483 as a spring-like birth, then undergoes an inner development, unfolds its capacities in the most wonderful creations, and, as Raphael, dies at the age of 37, thus still quite young. In order that we may focus properly on this soul and follow the stages in its development, we shall, for the moment, turn our attention away from what was otherwise going on in world history and concentrate solely upon Raphael's own inner life. Hermann Grimm has pointed out certain regularities in the inner development of Raphael's soul, and it may be said that there is no need for spiritual science to apologize for pointing out to a skeptical humanity certain cyclical laws pertaining to a spiritual path in any evolution, including that of a single individual, since so eminent a figure as Hermann Grimm has, without acknowledging this spiritual science, been led to identifying such a regular inner cyclic pattern with respect to the soul of Raphael. Hermann Grimm has drawn attention to the fact that the painting in Milan that has so enthralled us, the titled Marriage of the Virgin, is like something altogether new in the whole evolution of art and cannot be compared with anything that preceded it, so that one could say that Raphael created something from the infinite depths of a human soul that in the context of the whole of cultural evolution was completely new. If in this way we gain a sense of what lived in Raphael's soul from his birth, we can, if we continue to follow his development, also feel with Hermann Grimm how this development of his proceeds in regular stages, in stages of four years. It is remarkable how Raphael's soul advances in its development in cycles of four years. And if we examine such a four-year period, we find that his soul has reached a higher level. Some four years after the title Marriage of the Virgin, he painted the title Entombment. Four years after this, the frescoes of the title Camera della Segnatura. And then in four-year stages until that work which stood unfinished by his deathbed, the title Transfiguration of Christ. It is because everything in this soul unfolds so harmoniously that one has the wish to study it for its own sake. But then one can gain the impression that in Raphael's time such a quality of inwardness 
had to develop with respect to the art of painting, and that what came to expression in figures which only Raphael could create was born out of the depths of soul experiences, although it manifests itself in pictures of the sense world. And does it not also become part of history itself? Having thus spent a while focusing upon the inner nature of Raphael's soul, let us allow the time in which he lived and all that was around him to be the object of our attention. For as long as Raphael was more or less a child and was growing up in Urbino, we find that he was in an environment that had an awakening influence upon significant talents that made their appearance there. It was in Urbino that a palace had been built that aroused the excitement of the whole of Italy. This was something that imbued Raphael's early talents with an element that harmonized with their nature. We then see him moving to Perugia, then to Florence, and then to Rome. Raphael's life was essentially confined to a narrow circle. How close these places seem to us today when we study his entire life. Raphael's whole world was confined to this circle so far as the sense world was concerned. Only in the spirit did he rise to other spheres. But now we see how in Perugia, where Raphael spent much of his youth, bloody battles were the order of the day. The city was populated by inhabitants who were inflamed with powerful passions. Noble families whose lives were spent in wrangling and quarreling engaged in conflict with one another. The one family drove the others out of the city. After a brief period of expulsion, the others then tried to take control of the city again, and several times the streets of Perugia were bestrewn with blood and corpses. One historian describes an extraordinary scene, and indeed all the accounts that historians give of that time are quite distinctive. Thus we see through the historian's account a nobleman of the city entering it in battle array in order to avenge his relatives. The historian describes him to us as the spirit of war incarnate, riding on horseback through the streets, beating down everything that crosses his path. And it is evident that the writer had the impression that the vengeance exacted by the nobleman was justified, and that there comes into his mind the image of that warrior who casts the enemy beneath his feet. In Raphael's picture of St. George, we feel this image that the chronicler depicts appearing graphically before us, and we have the direct impression that it could not be otherwise, that Raphael must surely have been affected by this scene, and that what must outwardly seem to us as so terrible is internalized and reborn from Raphael's soul, and becomes the point of departure for his portrayal of the greatest images of human evolution. Thus Raphael saw people battling and quarreling around him. He had to experience much disorder and one battle after another in the city where he spent his early apprenticeship with his first teacher, Pietro Perugino. And we have the impression that there were two worlds present at that time, the one where cruelty and terror were being inflicted, and another world that lived inwardly in Raphael's soul and actually did not have much to do with what was going on around him in the physical world. Then again we see Raphael in 1504, after his move to Florence. What was Florence like when Raphael arrived there? The immediate impression of the inhabitants was of weariness, a people who had passed through inner and outer tumults and were weighed down with a certain sense of exhaustion and tiredness. What was it that had befallen Florence? Struggles similar to those in Perugia, bloody persecutions of various patrician families, to say nothing of battles with external powers, and then the dramatic event that shook everyone in the city, the experience of Savonarola, who, shortly before Raphael's arrival, had died a martyr's death. This remarkable figure of Savonarola stands before us denouncing with fiery words the evils of the time and specifically the cruelties, worldliness and pagan nature of the church. When we call them to mind, there still resound within us those thunderous words of Savonarola through which he captivated the whole of Florence, so that the people not only hung upon his lips but revered him as 
if a higher spirit were standing before them in this ascetic body. The words of Savonarola transformed the city of Florence with the force of a religious reformer who could influence not only religious ideas, but even the social fabric of the city. Thus Florence was under Savonarola's influence as if a city of God had been founded there. And then we see how Savonarola became a victim of those powers that he sought to counter both morally and religiously. There appears before our soul the moving picture of Savonarola being led to the stake with his companions and turning his eyes from the gallows whence he was to fall onto the burning pyre. It was in May 1498. To the people who had formerly clung to his every word, but who had now abandoned him and were looking with apparent disloyalty to the one who had for so long inspired them. There were only few, and they were mostly artists, in whom Savonarola's words still resounded. After Savonarola had been martyred, one painter of that time donned the monk's robe in order to continue working in his order under the influence of his spirit. One can imagine the weary atmosphere that presided over Florence, It was into this atmosphere that Raphael came in 1504, bringing with him a spring-like breath of the Spirit through the medium of his creative work, which introduced to the city a spiritual fire, but in a quite different way from Savonarola. When we contemplate the soul of Raphael, which appears to us in its isolation, so utterly unlike the mood of this city, when we see him engaged, together with artists and painters, in creative work in a solitary workshop in Florence or elsewhere, a different picture appears before us, which shows us in an historically visible way how Raphael's soul was inwardly isolated from the surroundings with which it was directly in contact. We become aware of the figures of the Roman popes, Alexander VI, Julius II, Leo X, the whole papal system against which Savonarola had directed his anger, and against which the reformers also turned. But we also recognize that this papal system was at the same time Raphael's patron. We see his soul in the service of the papacy, although in such a way that it had inwardly very little in common with what we find, for example, in his patron, Pope Julius II, of whom it was said that he gave the impression of someone with a devil in his body and always delighted in showing his teeth to his enemies. These popes are great figures, but they were certainly not what Savonarola or those who thought like him would have called Christians. The papacy had developed a new kind of pagan quality in contrast to old forms of paganism. There was little to be seen in these circles of Christian piety, though there was much brilliance, ambition, and lust for power in the popes as well as in their environment. Raphael was, as it were, in the service of this pagan Christianity. But in what way? Something was created from his soul that enabled Christian ideas to appear in a new form. In the Madonnas and in other works by Raphael we see the tenderest and most inward aspect of the world of Christian legend being renewed. What a contrast there is between the living inner quality of Raphael's creations and all that was going on around him in Rome when he entered into the outward service of the popes. But how was all this possible? We see him in his early period as a student in Perugia. We see then in Florence how great a contrast there is between his external surroundings and his inner state of being, and then quite particularly in Rome, where he created his immortal pictures amidst an officialdom of cardinals and priests that was altogether repugnant to Savonarola, whom Raphael did not by any means resemble. Nevertheless, one needs to view Raphael in this way, if one is wanting to form a true picture of what was living in his soul. Let us now explore Raphael's pictures themselves. It is not possible for this to happen in detail this evening, but at least one of his more well-known pictures can be singled out so that we are able to gain some understanding, especially of the quite distinctive nature of his soul. The picture in question is one that is very familiar to us, the Sistine Madonna in Dresden, which almost everyone knows from the numerous reproductions that are disseminated throughout the world. 
in this work of art, which is one of the greatest and noblest in human history, the mother appears with the child hovering on the heights of the clouds that cover the earthly globe, hover from the indefinite forms of the spiritual supersensible world, engirdled and surrounded by clouds that form themselves quite naturally into human-like figures, one of which seems to compose itself into the child of the Madonna. It awakens within us quite particular feelings, of which we can say that when they permeate our soul, we could forget all the legendary conceptions whence the image of the Madonna has originated, together with what Christian traditions say about the Madonna. I say this not in order to reduce the description to its bare essentials, but to characterize as fully as possible what we can feel in relation to the Madonna. Anyone who studies the evolution of humanity in a spiritual scientific sense reaches beyond a materialistic viewpoint. According to natural science, first the lower living beings developed and then evolution advanced upward to man. But in spiritual scientific terms, we must see man as a being who transcends everything that is at a lower level to him in the kingdoms of nature. With man we are concerned with something far older than all the beings that are to a greater or lesser degree close to him in the various kingdoms of nature. For spiritual science, man existed before the beings of the animal kingdom, before the plant kingdom, and even before the mineral kingdom. In a wider perspective, we look back to ages when that which now constitutes our innermost being was already in existence. For it was only later that this was incorporated into the kingdoms that are at a lower level than man. Thus we see the being of man hovering in anticipation from a realm beyond the earth. And we understand that we can form a true picture of this being of man only if we raise ourselves from all that the earth is able to engender and bring forth out of itself to something of a super-earthly and also pre-earthly nature. Through spiritual science we can know that if we engage fully with all the forces and living entities associated with the earth itself, we will not be able to form a picture of man's essential being. For we must lift our gaze from the earthly realm to the super-earthly regions, whence the being of man proceeds. Speaking figuratively, we must feel how something is wafting toward the earth when, for example, we direct our gaze toward a morning sunrise, toward a gold-gleaming light of dawn, and especially in a region such as where Raphael lived. And we can have the feeling that forces must work down into the earthly realm that are inherently associated with the being of the sun, S-U-N. Then from the golden radiance an image appears before our soul of what is hovering in anticipation of being clothed with earthly substance. Especially in Perugia one can have the feeling that the eye, E-Y-E, is beholding the same sunrise that Raphael experienced, and that in such phenomena as the rising sun, one can have a sense of the super-earthly aspect of man's being. From the sun-irradiated clouds there may, however dimly, dawn upon one the realization that the picture of the Madonna with the child is an image of the eternally super-earthly aspect of man's being which approaches the earth from extra-terrestrial realms, and beneath it, separated by clouds, is everything that can only proceed from the earthly realm. Our feelings may be raised to the highest spiritual heights if we devote our attention with our whole soul rather than theoretically or in an abstract way, to the effect that Raphael's Madonna has on us. It is perfectly natural for us to have such a feeling when looking at the world-famous picture in Dresden. As evidence of the effect that it has had on many people, I should like to share some words which a friend of Goethe, Karl August, who was at the time the Duke of Weimar, has written about the title Sistine Madonna after a visit to Dresden. Quote, with regard to the Raphael that adorns the collection, I can only say that I felt as if I had been climbing for the whole day through the Gotthard Mountains, had come through the Ursel Gap, 
and was looking down upon a green, blossoming valley. As I looked at the picture, and again away from it, it always seemed to me like a revelation of the soul. Even the most beautiful Correggios were only human pictures, my memory of them imprinted palpably as beautiful forms. But Raphael remained with me merely as a breath, as one of those revelations that the gods send to us in womanly form for our good or ill fortune. Like the pictures that come before us in the hours of sleep and our waking or dream consciousness, and whose gaze once encountered remains with us day and night and stirs our innermost being. Close quote, Steiner again. It is also remarkable that if one studies the writings of those who have been able to express a deep level of emotion as a result of having seen the Sistine Madonna and also other pictures by Raphael, it is again and again apparent that when people seek to characterize what they feel there are comparisons with light, with the sun, with all that is radiant and spring-like. This gives us an insight into Raphael's soul, into the way that from the circumstances of its environment that have been described, it engages in conversation with the eternal mysteries of human evolution. We feel that this soul of Raphael has a unique quality, something that has not grown out of its surroundings but is indicative of an immensity of human history. There is, then, no need to speculate. Such a soul which gazes out into the widths of the world periphery and gives expression to the mystery of existence, not in ideas, but forms it in such a picture, such a soul presents itself through such an inner perfection, quite naturally, as a very mature soul, which in its antecedents bears something of the forces of mankind a soul that must have passed through other periods of human evolution, and especially through many of these periods that have invested this soul with greatness and power, so that these qualities can appear again in what we call the life of Raphael. But how do they re-emerge? We see the living content of Christian legends and traditions reappearing in Raphael's pictures at a time when Christianity had adopted a pagan quality, and had abandoned itself to purely outward forms and splendors, just as Greek paganism was portrayed in its gods and was revered above all by the Greeks in their intoxication with beauty. We see Raphael depicting these figures of Christian tradition at a time when that which had been buried for many centuries beneath rubble and ruins on Roman soil was again being unearthed. We see that Raphael was himself among the excavators, there is something remarkable about this Rome to which Raphael had moved at this time. What preceded this time? First, we see the centuries when Rome was emerging, founded wholly upon the egotism of particular people whose prime consideration was to establish a human society on the basis of what a person might signify as a citizen of a state, a society in the outward physical world. Then, when Rome attained a certain climax in its development in the imperial age, we see how it absorbs Greek culture, which streams into Roman cultural life, and we experience how, whereas Rome indeed conquers Greece politically, from a cultural point of view Greece conquers Rome. Greek culture lives on in Roman culture. We see that Greek art, to the extent that it was absorbed by Rome, lives on in a Roman context we see that Rome is wholly pervaded by the essence of Greek culture. But why is it that this essence of Greek culture does not continue to be a characteristic quality in the development of Italy? Why did something entirely different happen? Because shortly after Greek culture had pervaded the Roman world, something else entered into the picture which impressed its signature more strongly upon what developed culturally on Italian soil. Christianity, the internalizing quality of Christianity. This did not have the intention of addressing mankind after the fashion of the sense-perceptible emphasis of the Greek cities, Greek works of sculpture or Greek philosophy, but addressed a quality in the inner human soul that was to enter formlessly into it 
and which it could take hold of only through inner struggles. This is why figures such as Augustine appear, figures with a wholly inward orientation. But then, since everything in evolution proceeds and unfolds in cycles, we see that after these people have undergone a journey inward and have lived as regards their soul existence for a long time without any connection with the beauties of outward life, that longing for beauty reappears. They behold the inner world again in the world around them. It is something really significant when in Assisi we see the intensified inner life of Francis of Assisi appear before our eyes through Giotto, when in Giotto's pictures we see expressed the inner experiences that Christianity can, as it were, engender in the human soul. And even if we may be justified in feeling that the inner nature of the human soul is somewhat awkwardly and imperfectly expressed in Giotto's pictures, we nevertheless see a direct ascent to the point where that which is most inward, most exalted and most noble confronts us in the outward form in the work of Raphael and his contemporaries. Here we are again directed toward a particular quality of the soul of Raphael. If we try to penetrate into the way that Raphael himself must have felt, we would have to say to ourselves, yes, when we see works of art such as the title Madonna della Sedia coming into being, it seems to us that the Madonna with the child and with John the Baptist in the foreground appear before us in such a way that when we contemplate them we could forget all the rest of the world, and quite especially that this child who is held by the Madonna can be connected with those experiences which we know as those of Golgotha. When looking at Raphael's picture, we forget everything that followed as the, quote, life of Christ Jesus, close quote. We enter wholly into the moment that is recorded here. We simply look at a mother with a child, of which Hermann Grimm has said that it is the greatest mystery that we can meet with in the outer world. Peace surrounds this moment, as if nothing could connect with it, either before or afterward. We are wholly immersed in the relationship of the Madonna to her child. We separate it as far as we are concerned from everything with which it is otherwise associated. Thus what Raphael created has the quality of inner perfection, making eternity manifest in a moment of time. What must it feel like to be a soul that creates in this way? It cannot feel as does the soul of Savonarola, which with an inner ardent fire inwardly feels the whole tragedy of Christ when he utters his words of anger or when he speaks religiously uplifting pious words to listeners of Christian devotion. We cannot imagine Raphael's soul getting worked up after the fashion of a Savonarola or others like him. We cannot imagine that so-called Christian fire had sovereignty over Raphael's soul. But if we can allow ourselves to be influenced by the true nature of a human soul, we should not think that the Christian imaginations depicted pictorially by Raphael could have come before us with such an inner intensity and perfection if the soul had been so wholly estranged from this Christian fire as it appears to us to be when it is working quite objectively on these pictures. One cannot create figures with such objectivity and roundness if one is imbued, say, with the fire of Savonarola, if one's soul is burdened by the whole tragic mood of Christ and feels inspired by it, a very different quality of peace and a quite different Christian sensibility must have pervaded the soul. Nevertheless, what came to expression in Raphael's pictures could not have come about if the deepest essence of Christian inwardness had not been living in this soul. Is it then not quite natural to say, yes, we have before us a soul which already brought that fire that we perceive so visibly in Savonarola with it into the physical existence which it embarked upon as the artist Raphael? When we realize that it brought this fire through the portal of birth from previous earthly lives, we understand how it could be so luminous, so inwardly perfect that this fire does not come forth as something all-consuming and shattering, but 
as the radiance of pictorial creativity. So one can say that in Raphael's innate attributes, one senses something living there that in a former life had been able to speak with the same fire that emanated subsequently from Savonarola. And one should not be surprised if in Raphael's soul there were a reborn soul from a time when Christianity was experienced not pictorially, not expressed in artistic form, but from the time of its founding, when the great impulse which then worked on in the course of many centuries had its starting point. In order to understand a soul such as Raphael, it is perhaps not too bold to say something of this kind. For anyone who has, through returning again and again to a study of Raphael's works, learned to revere this soul in its depths, to perceive the fathomless profundity of its influence, cannot fail to understand, through such far-reaching study, what speaks to us when Raphael has poured his soul into his miraculous paintings. Thus the mission of Raphael only really appears to us in the right light, when, in accordance with an expression of Goethe's, we look in a, quote, former life, unquote, for the Christian fire that appears in a later life as the radiant quality inherent in Raphael. Then we also understand why this soul had to have so isolated a relationship to the world, and why this soul that we have tried to characterize, which had perhaps to an intensified degree something of a Savonarola quality in a previous existence, was able to sense something new in what had entered into the cultural development of Italy at the time of Raphael. Whereas, as I have already described, Greek culture had become influential in the development of Rome in the time when the imperial age was approaching and was followed by a period of internalization, we see now, in the age of Raphael, the Renaissance, on the one hand the reappearance of this ancient Greek culture which had long been buried under rubble and ruins. We see Rome filling itself with the remnants of this Greek culture, the reappearance of what through the Greek spirit had adorned and beautified the city, the eyes of the Roman people turning once again to the forms that the Greek spirit had formerly created. On the other hand, we also see in this age the spirit of Plato, the spirit of Aristotle, the spirit of the Greek tragedies enter into Roman life. Once again, we see the conquest of the Roman world by Greek culture. It is quite possible that a figure who had formerly been devoted in a one-sided way to the morally religious aspect of Christianity and in a previous life had given itself wholly to these morally religious impressions must have experienced Greek culture as having a fructifying, renewing influence when it emerged from the rubble and ruins on the Italian peninsula. Thus, whereas, one sees the morally religious impulse of Christianity as though residing in Raphael's gifts, one sees that which did not live in him as a natural aptitude appear before his eyes in the resurrected culture of Greece. The statues re-emerging from the rubble and ruins and the Greek cultural artifacts deriving from the rediscovered manuscripts influence Raphael's soul more deeply than anyone else's. What, from his own predisposition, from his Christian sensibility, was united with a super-spiritual devotion to the cosmos, worked hand in hand with the Greek culture as it re-emerged in his own time. These were the two things that united in his soul and which enable us to experience in Raphael's works the inward quality of the post-Grecian age, the quality of inwardness that Christianity poured into human evolution which was brought fully to outward expression in a world of artistic forms marked throughout by the purest spirit of Greece. We see, then, the remarkable phenomenon that through Raphael the world of ancient Greece reappears in Christianized form. In Raphael we see Christianity appearing in a time which, in a certain sense, exhibits all around him an anti-Christian quality. We see that he represents a Christianity that far transcended all aspects of the Christianity that had preceded him and extended to a broad observation of his contemporary world. 
and yet it was a Christianity that does not reach out dimly and vaguely to infinite spheres of pure spirit, but is united, as formerly the Greeks' ideas of the gods were united in artistic form, with what formlessly lives and weaves through the world, and has been concentrated into forms whence at the same time it delights our senses. This is what we find when we try to form an overall picture, when we focus on one or another of Raphael's paintings, when we allow all this sublime perfection, and yet this most wonderful superfluity of youth, for Raphael was only thirty-seven when he died, to have an effect on us. Not for the sake of some dull theory, and certainly not with the object of constructing a philosophy of history, but as something derived from direct experience, it must be said that the laws underlying the cultural life of humanity are truly manifested in a spirit as outstanding as Raphael. Anyone who conceives of this course of cultural life as a straight line, where effect follows cause, has little idea of the actual facts. It is only too easy to come out with the saying that is surely one of the golden sayings of humanity, life and nature do not make leaps, well and good. But the truth is that in a certain respect life and nature do continually make leaps. We can see this in the development of the plant from green leaf to blossom and from blossom to the fruit. Everything does indeed, in quotes, evolve, but leaps occur as a matter of course. It is similar with the cultural life of humanity, and this is bound up with many mysteries. One of these mysteries is that a later age must always hark back to an earlier one. Just as male and female have to cooperate with one another, the various spirits of the age must work together in a mutually fruitful way if any further development is to occur. Thus, in its imperial phase, Rome had to be fructified by Greek culture in order that a new spirit of the age might arise. And this spirit of the age had, in turn, to be fructified by the Christ impulse, so that the inwardness that we encounter in Augustine and others might be possible. Similarly, this inwardly so advanced human soul of Raphael had subsequently to be fructified by Greek culture which had been twice buried and then re-emerged. It withdrew in a twofold sense, from eyes in the works of art that lay buried beneath the soil of Italy and from souls in the buried works of literature that manifested the spirit of Greece. These centuries of the first Christian millennium in Italy were remarkably little influenced by what lived in Greek philosophy, in Greek poetry and drama. Culture was twice buried, and waited in, as it were, a realm beyond the threshold for a time when it could newly fructify the human soul, which had, in the meantime, embraced a new religion. It was buried, removed from the outward sight of human beings, and also for the souls who did not know that it would continue to develop. It was like a river that continues to flow far beneath a mountain, disappears from sight and then comes to the surface again. This ancient Greek culture was buried both outwardly for the senses and inwardly for the depths of people's souls. Now it came bubbling up again. For sensory perception it was excavated from Italian soil in the form of artistic works. For intellectual experience it reappeared not only through its being extracted from ancient manuscripts, but through people developing the awareness in the Greek sense that everything sense-perceptible is a revelation of the spiritual world. Human beings began again to feel what Plato and Aristotle had once thought. However, the person who was most strongly influenced by this, because the Christian impulse had attained a greater level of maturity in his soul than in any other, was Raphael. In him this previously twice-buried and twice-resurrected Greek culture now worked in such a way that he was able to portray in forms the whole of human evolution. How wonderfully he accomplished this in the pictures in the title Camera della Segnatura 
in the Vatican, where we see the struggles of those spirits who emerged in the age of internalization and were not there in the age of ancient Greece. The whole period of internalization was necessary in order that they could be perceived in the time of Raphael. We now see this tendency toward greater inwardness painted on the walls of the papal chambers. What the Greeks had conceived of only in forms has now become inward. We see the inner strivings and conflicts which mankind has itself undergone magically adorning the walls of the papal palace with a formative power, artistic mood and beauty wholly characteristic of Greece. The Greeks exhibited in their statues their conception of the way that the gods worked upon the world. What comes to expression in the painting commonly known as titled The School of Athens is the way that human beings had experienced themselves exploring the very foundations of things. And in the title Parnassus, we see the way that the human soul has learned to perceive the Greek gods presented to us in a significant reinterpretation of the gods of Homer. These are not the gods of the Iliad and Odyssey, but they are the gods as perceived by a soul that has already passed through the age of inwardness. On the other wall we see a picture that, irrespective of one's religious persuasion, must make an unforgettable impression, however slight one's acquaintance with it. A picture which portrays something of a deeply inward nature, the title Disputa, whereas the other pictures portray with the Greek beauty of form something that one can aspire to through a certain philosophical striving. In the picture in question we encounter the deepest truth that a human soul can experience. And since we do not need to think in terms of a narrowly defined Christian consciousness, this manifests itself to us here if we find the tri-unity of Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva expressed in a completely different way. We see what the human soul, whatever creed it may adhere to, can inwardly experience as the Trinity appear before us. It appears before us, though not in a purely symbolic form, in the symbolism of the Trinity in the upper part of the picture. It again comes before us in every countenance of the Church Fathers and the philosophers, in every hand gesture, in the whole grouping of the figures, in the wonderful coloring. We see it in the totality of the picture, which gives us an inner insight into the human soul in the beautiful form, pervaded as it is by a Greek spirit. Thus we see the internalization that the human soul has experienced in the course of fifteen hundred years rise again as an outward revelation. We see Christianity not as the paganism of Greece with its wonderful figures, which is nevertheless Christianity, reborn in the pictures of Raphael. Thus this soul of Raphael appears as a kind of watershed of the ages, pointing back to its antecedents, gathering up the beauty of outward revelations that had accumulated prior to Christianity, and at the same time oriented toward what has been brought about in human evolution in terms of the so-called, quote, education of the human race, close quote, and which the reincarnated soul makes manifest as the internalization of this human soul. Thus we stand before these pictures of Raphael, before these miraculous works of a unique art, in such a way that they appear to us as a converging of two ages, which are clearly distant from one another, the pre-Grecian and post-Grecian ages, the age of outward experience and that of inner experience. But these pictures also offer us a perspective into the future. For who of us who realize the potential significance of the interplay of outward beauty and the inner wisdom-filled urge of the human soul would not feel a hope and an assurance, despite everything that must develop outwardly ever more and more in the outward course of human evolution, that this inward quality must advance further in the course of evolution, that the human soul must come to experience increasingly inward periods in its following lives. 
If one turns to literature, one can study, not as an art critic or a mere reader, the work of a scholar like Hermann Grimm, who tried with his whole soul to portray the working of human imagination. And one can understand the inner sympathy with which he viewed the creative work of Raphael. If, moreover, one approaches such a figure as Hermann Grimm with this same inner sympathy, one can understand the significance of a certain passage in his book about Raphael. With regard to this passage, it is necessary to gain a sense of what was living in Hermann Grimm's soul when he expressed a thought that he merely hints at on the very first page of his book, at the point where he devotes his attention to Raphael's having emerged from ancient times. It is not really possible to see from Hermann Grimm's formal description of Raphael's work where this thought comes from. In the middle of broad historical observations, within which Raphael is included, a thought occurs to Hermann Grimm, which he formulates tentatively as follows, quote, I see developments of humanity occurring before my eyes that I shall be denied to accompany, but which appear to me so radiantly beautiful that for their sake it would probably be worth the trouble to begin human life over again. Close quote. This longing for a re-embodiment in the introduction to his book on Raphael, is remarkable and moreover deeply characteristic of the feeling living in a person who tried to live fully into Raphael's soul and into his connection with other ages. This makes one feel that works such as those by Raphael are not only an end result. They not only lead to an observation that enables us to say how grateful we must be toward what the past has given to our age, but such works can enable a quite different feeling to arise within us, a feeling of hope, because they strengthen within us a faith in an advancing humanity, and because we are obliged to say to ourselves that these works could not be what they are if progress were not an essential aspect of human nature. So we have a sense of certainty and hope if we truly attend to what Raphael has to say to us. And we can then say, Raphael has spoken to humanity through what he has created artistically. When we look at the frescoes in the Camera della Segnatura, we feel the transitoriness of the outer world and that because of the frequent overpainting that has occurred, we cannot any longer have any idea of the magic that Raphael once painted on the walls. We are aware that at some future time, a humanity will live on the earth which will not have the possibility of perceiving the original works. But we know that mankind will always be developing further. Raphael's works really began to make their triumphal impact when, with devotion and love, innumerable copies, engravings and reproductions of these works were made. These works of Raphael continue to exert an influence also in their reproductions. One can understand it when Hermann Grimm relates that he had hung a large photograph of the Sistine Madonna in his room and that when he entered this room he always felt as though he had no right to do so, as though it were a sanctuary of the Madonna in the picture. Many people will doubtless have experienced that they almost became a different person when they really devote their attention to a picture by Raphael, even if it is a reproduction. It is true that the time will come when the originals are no longer there, but will they not exist in other realms? What Hermann Grimm states in his book on Homer is quite true. We can also no longer rightly appreciate Homer's originals, because when we read the Iliad and Odyssey in ordinary life, we are, without higher spiritual forces, no longer in a position to enter fully into the subtleties, beauty, and power of the Greek language. The originals no longer exist, but nonetheless Homer's poetry speaks to us. But what Raphael has given outwardly will always remain as a living witness that there was once a time in the evolution of humanity when the mysteries of existence spoke to the eyes of human beings on a very broad scale, not in printed and written form, for at that time this did not generally happen, but in the creative work of Raphael. The age of Raphael was one when 
People read less, but by the same token saw more. What Raphael will always have to say to humanity will be a witness to this time, which was differently constituted, but which will nevertheless continue to exert an influence in all future ages, because humanity is one whole organism. Thus Raphael's creativity will live on in the course of human evolution, also inwardly in the successive lives that his spirit has to live and in which he has ever greater and ever more deeply inward gifts to bestow upon mankind. Thus spiritual science points toward a twofold continuation of life, that further life which has been described in the previous lectures and will be spoken of further, and another spiritual life toward which we are constantly striving and which becomes our guide when we experience earthly existence in ever new epochs. And Hermann Grimm is right to say what he did when he gave expression to what he came to feel as a result of his study of Raphael. Even though a time will come when Raphael's work will have faded and been destroyed, he will nevertheless continue to be alive for humanity. For in him humanity blossomed forth into something which in every respect has been implanted in its spirit and which will forever germinate and bear fruit. A human soul that is able to immerse itself sufficiently in Raphael will be aware of this. Indeed, we will have wholly understood Raphael only if we are able, spiritual, scientifically, to elevate and deepen a feeling that fully impressed itself on Hermann Grimm. We indicated in the previous lecture how close he stood to spiritual science when he concerned himself with Raphael. We shall understand our relationship to Raphael. We shall understand how the thoughts that have been presented today may become seeds for the future if we conclude by summarizing what it has been the intention to convey today by means of some words of Hermann Grimm. Quote, People will always want to know about Raphael, about the beautiful young painter who surpassed all others and who was fated to die young. The whole of Rome mourned his death. When Raphael's works are eventually lost, his name will continue to be engraved in human memory. Close quote. Thus wrote Hermann Grimm when he began in his particular way to describe Raphael. We can understand these words, and we also understand him when at the end of his book about Raphael he lets these words sound forth. Quote, Everyone will want to know about the life's work of such a person. Raphael has become one of the elements upon which the higher development of the human spirit rests. We would wish to draw nearer to him because we need him for our well-being. The end of Lecture 9